You're listening to a sermon from Grace Church, located in Frisco, Texas. Get to know Grace Church better by visiting our website at www.gracechurchfrisco.org. Today's speaker is Pastor Craig Cabanis. Well, if we've not met, my name is Craig. I'm one of the pastors here, and uh, we're in a series where we are talking about the beautiful community, meaning the, the church of Jesus Christ, and uh, we're sort of talking about a, a big theme, which is learning to love cross-culturally. So we, we live in a multi-ethnic city. Uh, we're becoming a multi-ethnic church. And so we want to learn how to love cross-culturally. So today, uh, I have asked uh, Maddie Wilkinson to share a bit of her story, which I think is an example uh, and will help us learn to love cross-culturally. So Maddie, let's welcome her as she comes to share. Good morning, Grace Church. When I got in trouble as a child, my mom would call me by all my names. Maria Elena Graterol Osorio. Nowadays, I go by Maddie Wilkinson. I'm so thankful that I don't get into that kind of trouble anymore. In order to tell you a little bit about my story, I wanted to share something I wrote a couple of years ago. This is it. Recently, a friend asked me how often I miss Venezuela, and I answered every day. This doesn't mean I'm not happy where I am. It just means that at one time, I belonged somewhere else, and in a way, I still do. There is so much about me that makes sense only in the context of Venezuela. I am home where I am right now, but I also feel far, feel far away from home. I find myself content where I am, but also dissatisfied. I speak the language of this land fluently, but my heart naturally speaks the language of a foreign one. C.S. Lewis once wrote, if we find ourselves with a desire that nothing in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that we were made for another world. He was talking about our deepest and undeniable longing for the one we belong to, God. Sometimes I really dislike this feeling of not belonging that is so familiar to me. I have cried many tears over it, but it has certainly helped me understand what Lewis meant. So today, I thank God for this sometimes downright overwhelming nostalgia for home while I sit at home. He has used it to help me know what my heart truly longs for, which is him. I share this with you because this is the way I feel on a regular basis. I wrote this two years ago, but I feel like this on a regular basis. I love the U.S. very much, but I will always be a foreigner here. That is a humbling place for me to be. However, it is in this place of humility that I have better understood the God and that I love and his love for me. And one of the most effective ways through which he has helped me understand his character is the gospel-driven love that I have received from my brothers and sisters in Christ here in America. It has been because of this counter-cultural love that I have found a, way, a home away from home. During the years of Bible college and seminary, which were the original reason why I came to the United States, God provided me with American friends who were hospitable and sensitive. They didn't just invite me into their homes, they invited me into their hearts. They were sensitive to the fact that this country was not my home country, and they considered that as they related to me. They were patient with me when I struggled to 
share my thoughts in English. They were patient as I didn't understand what they were saying or sometimes what they meant. There's a, there's a difference between those two things. Um, I felt comfortable around American friends who did not assume that they knew all there was to know about my country, who did not assume that they knew why I was here, who did not let the differences between our cultures be detrimental to our friendship, but who saw it as a, a benefit for our relationship. These friendships were a healing place for me when I felt hurt by an insensitive comment like, aren't you so glad that you're not there anymore? Comments like this came often, especially regarding the political situation in Venezuela at the time and even now. These assumptions hurt because they did not reflect the reality of my particular situation, and they made me feel like the person making those assumptions didn't really want to know me. It was a mindful, sensitive, intentionally caring believers in my life that provided a space for me to heal, regroup, recharge, and get a sweet taste of home. I am still blessed by believers like this today. I rub shoulders with them here at Grace Church. I am very thankful for that. Even though I have been here for 23 years, I still feel like a foreigner. I do math in Spanish, and if someone cuts me off in traffic and I happen to get really angry, let's just say I don't express my indignation in English. When Caleb is gone somewhere for days, I feel alone and vulnerable, even when I have my children here. But the Lord, the Lord comforts me with the love of his people here in Grace, at Grace Church. It is really a wonderful blessing to be loved by people like you who understand that because of Jesus Christ, you too are foreigners like me. Mm-hmm. And that just like Lewis said, we all belong to another world. Thank you. Amen. Thanks, Mari. Thank you. Wonderful. Thank you so much. Well, we've mentioned with the prayer guide, Caleb has mentioned that uh, we have more, I don't know the number, but more than 30 nations represented uh, in our congregation. So it's just wonderful to hear someone's experience that you might not think of when you sit next to them on a Sunday morning. They may be experiencing uh, this service or uh, this country or this city different, differently than, than you experience. So it's helpful to know someone else's experience as well as the power of love to make someone feel at home in the body of Christ, even while away from home, to feel at home because we are one in Jesus And as we express that to one another, uh, especially along uh, cross-cultural lines, it can make such a difference. So thank you for sharing that with us today, Madi. Well, we've been talking about learning to love cross-culturally, so today I really want to focus on love because we haven't talked a lot about what love is. So we're going to look at 1 Corinthians 13 today. Now, this is a popular passage at weddings. Maybe you had it read at your wedding Uh, because it is a beautiful love poem. But it's not just a love poem that that Paul sort of randomly drops into uh, a discussion about spiritual gifts. That's where actually we find this, in the middle of a discussion about spiritual gifts. He he drops this love poem in the middle of a letter 
to a divided church. And so today I want to talk about a uniting love for a divided people, a uniting love for a divided people. And by the title, I don't mean to imply that as Grace Church we're a divided people, but Corinth clearly was a divided people. Uh, Some of the members, here's what's going on in this section of scripture, Uh, some of the members were obsessed with certain spiritual gifts. And so they thought that if they had a certain gift or group of gifts, they were superior to others. And so because some were passionate about these gifts and some were uh, less passionate about those gifts, maybe passionate about another gift, uh, there was this terrible division in the church. And so God's answer to their disunity was to call them to a gospel-empowered love. And that's really what he does in this passage. So I'm going to read it in three sections Almost all my time will be spent on the middle section, but I want to get the context of this chapter. So let's begin by reading uh, verses 1, 2, 3. Listen here to uh, uh, God's word to the Corinthians and to us. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge... And if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I'm nothing. If I give away all I have and deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. This first section here, he's talking about the priority of love. This is the first point, the priority of love, the Corinthians did not love each other well at all, and so what he's telling them here is you can have all kinds of gifts, but if you use your gifts without love among the people of God, you are like a clanging cymbal. Now, he's not against percussion, but what he's saying is if you were to just have someone beat a gong or beat a cymbal, as opposed to hearing that within a mix of other instruments, it would just be meaningless noise. You can't carry a melody uh, through a clanging cymbal. So he said, if you use spiritual gifts and you don't love other people, you're just meaningless noise. It's a strong, strong statement. He says you can possess all kinds of knowledge. You can possess, uh, you can, uh, possess gifts. You can exercise faith, such great faith that it would even move a mountain. But without love, you are nothing. Phil Riken kind of sums up these verses this way. He says, what matters most is not how gifted we are, but how loving we are. That's what Paul's saying to them. It does not matter how gifted you are. What matters is how loving you are. And then he shifts from gifts to sacrifices. And he says, you know, you can give away all that you have. That's what he says in verse 3. You can give away everything. You could even give away your life. He says, if I deliver my body up, to be burned. He says, you could even make the ultimate sacrifice, martyrdom. But if you're not motivated by love and giving up all your possessions and even your life, it's nothing. I mean, what he's saying is you can do the most noble act. You, you can provide the greatest sacrifice and still do it from a wrong motive. You could give all that you have from the motive of spiritual pride. You want others to see you as a very godly person. You can give away everything you have as a way to sort of earn favor with God, legalism. 
doing something so that God will love you and God will accept you. If you do it for that reason, you are nothing. If you don't make sacrifices for the love of God and the love of neighbor, then really it's meaningless with some other type of motive. So as we apply this to the theme where we've been recent weeks, as we've talked uh, about the beautiful community, we might say it this way. If we pursue unity, if we pursue unity, if we, if we are seeking to grow as a multi-ethnic and multi-generational family, but we don't have love for one another, we are wasting our time. If there's any motive besides the glory of God and the love of our neighbor, it is wrong. Love is the priority. And so what he does is he doesn't just say love is the priority. He then gives us this breathtaking picture of what love is, and that's verses 4 through 7. Let's read along. Love is patient and kind. It does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. This, this poem is what it really is. Uh, it, Paul is not just describing love, he, he personifies love. That is, he, he takes a concept like love and he gives it human characteristics and says, love does this, as if, as if love were a person. This is what love does. And he shows us this picture, calling this divided church to focus on love. And the picture he gives us is really a picture of God. It's a picture of Jesus Christ, for Christ is the one who is ultimate love. We're going to look at these things he says. This will be a little bit kind of like a meditation on what he's talking about, these terms I can't develop each term in great depth because we just don't have time for that. But I will uh, spend a little time on the first two and then run through a little bit faster the rest of them, but I'll comment on all of them. He starts by saying that love is patient. Patient means to be long-suffering, to be forbearing. Patience is, uh, patience has to do with waiting, and so that's why it's, one of the least popular virtues imaginable. It has to do with waiting. It, it, is, it is showing love to someone, and it's particularly relevant when we want another person to change. Patience is forbearing and waiting with another person. Patience means that we don't require someone to change at our pace for them. We don't require someone to move at our pace. It's patience. And this is exactly how God relates to us. The basis for our showing loving patience to others, it has to be God's patience towards us. This is how Paul says it in 1 Timothy chapter 1. He writes, The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am am the foremost. But I received mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those 
who were to believe in him for eternal life. Paul is saying, I am the chief, the foremost of sinners, and yet God has shown perfect patience with me in Jesus Christ. The root of being patient with other people is not just gritting our teeth and seeking to work on this, memorizing a few verses about patience and just, I've got it, I'm going to do it. No, it is dwelling in God's patience for us. For God has been long-suffering. God has put up with so much of our nonsense and sins and slow, slow to change. I, I know for me so often I, I think of someone else and I think, why can't they get it? Don't you just see it? Can't you get it? And yet my whole life, God could look at me and it would be fair for him to say, don't you get it? <laughs> and yet he's been patient with me. Not only are we to be patient with someone else's actions, but we're to be patient with other people's way of thinking. This came out in Mahdi's testimony, didn't it? That there was a group of Christians who related with me, she said it, with patience with everything from language to understanding to who I am and where I'm from, wanting to know me as a person, taking the time to invest patience. In a book called Talking About Race, Christian author and pastor Isaac Adams writes the following. The first characteristic of love listed in 1 Corinthians 13 is that it is patient. So let's not listen to one another only to respond or to correct, but to understand. And understanding usually takes time. If you're struggling to extend that time, keep in mind that there was a time when, on a given topic, you were in the dark and ignorant, and people were patient with you. Remember that. Or get around an older saint in your church and witness their patience and learn. I love that he tosses that in as well. Look, look at older folks who typically get patience. Grandparents are more patient than parents. They're not as responsible. There's lots of reasons, but... <laughs> But this is true. I have been both. I am both. And I can say, my kids will say, wow, dad is so patient with the grandkids. Where was this when we were growing up, right? <laughs> but we want to we understand. We're not just in a conversation looking to make our point, to insist that you understand me, but to patiently listen. And once I think I've heard, ask more. That's patient learning. Love is patient. It's not in a hurry. Also, he says, love is kind. Love is patient and kind, verse 4. Kindness seems like such a small thing, doesn't it? It just seems like, it's, it seems like such a, such a small thing. I, it almost sounds like a wimpy virtue, you know? He's a kind person. We kind of go, well, that's, that's quaint. That's sweet. It's cute. He's kind. We don't think of kindness as some robust, powerful virtue, but, but it is. Because kindness is active. Patience is sort of passive or reactive. 
Kindness is actively moving towards another person in love. Kindness is tangible love. It is demonstrating love. It's really powerful. Kindness is taking an interest in another person. Kindness is meeting a practical need. It's actually helping someone out of your heart for them. This is kindness. Kindness is generously giving to another person that needs, or even if they don't need, generously giving to them to bless them. Kindness is bringing an encouragement to someone who is down. Kindness is even praying for another person. As we pray through the prayer guide this month and this year as you're praying, one of the, one of the reasons we're doing that is because we want to honor the Lord. We want to see the Lord move in other places in the world. We want to know other places in the world. But as Caleb said this morning, we want to know people from other places in the world who are actually in our church. And so prayer is a form of kindness as well. British pastor Charles Spurgeon sort of famously said, no man can do me a truer kindness in this world than to pray for me. No one can do a truer kindness to me than to pray for me. Kindness is not a wimpy virtue. It is the fruit of the Spirit. The Holy Spirit produces, a Galatian says, kindness in our hearts and lives to demonstrate love for one another. And it too is tied with the work of Jesus. In Ephesians 4, this is what Paul writes, be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. Far from being some quaint virtue, kindness is tied to the suffering of Jesus here. Be kind, forgive, as Christ shed his blood, as God forgives you because of the death of Jesus. So kindness is tied to what Christ did for us on the cross so that we receive his kindness and then can move toward one another as believers in the church in kindness. We want to move towards unbelievers as well. But we want to move towards one another in kindness. And so I want to ask you today, to whom in our church family might God be calling you to show kindness? Who is God calling you to love cross-culturally, to take initiative toward? And we just heard a story that, praise God, someone took initiative uh, towards someone who came to the country and felt like, understandably, as, a, as an outsider, a foreigner, and someone moved towards Marian love, crossing a cultural line to care and to listen and to welcome and to include. Who's God calling you to reach with kindness? Several times in this series, I've said, can I be real? Uh, so I, I guess I don't need to say that every week, right? But... Uh, so the, in this series, I'm having conversations, pastors are having conversations, uh, answering questions. Um, people have been just tremendously encouraged and encouraging about all of this, but there's been certainly legitimate uh, and fair questions along the way. And one of the things I've been asked, um, as we've talked about loving cross-culturally, one of the things I've been asked by some people is, if I reach out to a person during this series who's from another nation, or another race, is that going to come off to them as sort of um, like racial targeting, or is that going to come off to them as, as tokenism? Tokenism is a perfunctory act that you do to give a good appearance, 
but it's not motivated by this. So is it tokenism if I go to a person of a different race, say, we'd like to have you guys over for dinner during this series? Are they going to think, you don't really care about me, you're just inviting me because you heard the pastor say that in one of uh, the sermons. And I get that, that sense. Hey, I want to be sincere. I want to be loving. I want to reach out. But like, should I wait six months? We're not talking about this. <laughs> and then it will be received a little better. You know, are they going to think, are they going to think, hey, you're just inviting me over because I'm Albanian. I tried to pick a country that's not represented here, okay? <laughs> if you're from Albania, welcome, but okay. I just had, I had to give an illustration. I had, to make, I had to make a point. Are they inviting us over because we're Albanian? Okay, here's how I would address that. First of all, <clears throat> they probably won't think that. <clears throat> they probably won't think that. If you are tempted to think that, that this is perfunctory and not sincere, that this is tokenism, if you are tempted to think that, then I would say the scripture would call you as well to kindness, which believes the best about another person's motive. So I want to extend kindness, you want to extend kindness, and then when it's given us, we don't want to question motive, we want to extend kindness in return. And beyond that, I would say this, that once you sit together five minutes over coffee or a meal or hanging out and start to share your stories, all those concerns are gone. It's two humans or a group of humans sharing their hearts together. So let's not be hesitant because we're concerned what someone else will think of our comments or our invitation or something like that. That is the tool of the enemy. The enemy would want everybody to freeze, everybody to be gripped by fear, the fear of what someone else is thinking, what's going to happen, where are we going, wants us to be gripped by fear so that we don't love one another. The Lord wants us to be patient as God has been patient with us. The Lord wants us to be kind as Christ has been kind to us by giving his life and leave the results to him. Listen, in a polarized culture like we live in, cross-cultural kindness is a radical act. It is radical to get out of ourselves and to love others around us, especially those who could be from a different background than we are, that this is the kindness of God. Next he says, love is patient, and I can't spend this much time on all of them, but love is patient, love is kind, love does not envy. Envy is when we are discontent with what God has given us, and we have a desire for what God has given someone else, their opportunities, their life, their gifts, um, their talents, their possessions, their friendships, their relationship, their their marriage, their job, their house. It's, it's where we want something, the way, their, their, their spiritual gifts even. That's what's probably going on here when he says love does not envy. Listen, you can't love someone by envying them. Love celebrates the gifts of others. Love celebrates when someone else is blessed. Love celebrates with another person, even if they have it better than we do, even if they have what we want and don't have. Love says, I don't envy you, I bless you, and I celebrate with you. Envy comes from a place of comparison, where I compare myself with you. Listen, Jesus didn't compare himself, he emptied himself. He laid down his life 
for others so that we would do the same. Love is the very opposite of envy. Love does not envy. It does not boast. Love doesn't brag. Now, most of us, and maybe in this church they were doing, I mean, the Corinthians pretty messed up, but even there, most people just don't overtly brag. It's usually much more subtle. And if you've been around for a while, you know how to slip it in sort of casually. It's just bringing attention to yourself. It's bringing focus to yourself. Bragging is communicating or acting in a way so that others will think well of us. But love doesn't brag. Love is self-forgetful. Love doesn't have time to boast because it's concentrating on the other person. Love doesn't boast because it boasts in Christ. So I can't be celebrating what God's done in your life, seeking to learn about your life, seeking to encourage you, seeking to you know, uh, seeking to become better friends with you and enter into what's going on in your life and boast about myself at the same time. I could do one or the other. I could be self-focused, I could be you-focused, but I don't multitask my focus. I'll be focused on one or the other. And love does not boast. He says, love is not arrogant. Love does not envy, it does not boast, it is not arrogant. It, It literally means puffed up. Love is not puffed up. To be puffed up is to be full of oneself. And yet love is not full of oneself. Love is the opposite of puffed up. Love is humble. Love is humble because humility focuses on God and on others. Philippians 2 says that Jesus humbled himself to the point of the cross, of dying on a cross. And because of his humility, he calls us to be humble, and he empowers us to be humble as well. This is so countercultural. Are you picking that up? The, the love here is so absolutely countercultural. There's nothing like this that, 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 is, that, that uh, is found in our culture, and it doesn't even resonate with our culture. The culture says you've got you've to navigate your own way. You've got to take care of yourself. You've got to be about you. If you don't take care of yourself, who will? If you don't focus on you, who will? And the Bible says lay down your life. Don't worry about that. Lose your life and you'll find it is what Jesus says. Lose it and you'll find real life. As we've been talking about loving, learning to love cross-culturally, um, some maybe think, well, hey, are we kind of taking our cues from the culture here? Are we trying to follow the culture? That's one of the reasons I want to look at this passage of love. There's nothing more against the culture than what I'm teaching you today. This defies our culture and says we are not boasting and envying and self-seeking. We are not, we are not called to make any of this about ourselves. We are rather to love and to serve and to care for our brother and sister in Christ. We are valuing a kind of love that's found in Jesus who laid down his life in humility. He humbled himself to the point of a cross. This is our God. This is our ambition to lay down our very lives. There is nothing more countercultural than this type of love that we see in 1 Corinthians 13. It, it is not arrogant. He goes on to say, it is not rude. Now, he's not just saying, hey, everybody have good manners. 
Uh, it's not a bad idea to have good manners, but he's not just saying we all need to have good manners. He's saying that as opposed to rudeness, genuine courtesy towards other people is an expression of love for them. Genuine courtesy is an expression of love. Here's rudeness. I'm going to say what I want and do what I want when I want, express myself as I want without any concern for those around me. I'm going to act however, whatever I feel like saying or doing, I'm just going to do that. And that's acting rudely towards others. Whereas biblical love is courteous. It's prioritizing others in a way that we seek to honor them. It acts to honor other people. So we are to speak to others with civility. We are to speak ab about them without being rude, but with being gracious and kind and civil. Can we just all acknowledge what is so obvious that our culture has completely lost the value of civility? It, it's not celebrated um, it's not celebrated in politics. It's not celebrated on social media. So frequently, rudeness is celebrated. If you differ with someone, you can say whatever you want about them. You can call them whatever names you want. And this, stop, this starts at the highest levels of our society and runs all the way through. Say whatever you want, impugn their character, call them names, uh, tell, don't tell the full truth about them. We celebrate rudeness. We laugh at it. When someone is rude to someone else, we laugh at that and, and find that funny and entertaining, especially if they're representing our point of view. Yes, it's like rooting for your favorite football team. Go, you're cheering them on. We, we cheer on the voices that are rude to others that represent us. May it never be in the church of Jesus Christ that we treat one another rudely, publicly or behind their back. There is a civility that needs to show up because it's Christ-like even in our differences. Even when we differ, there is a humility about the way we talk about one another and for, uh, to one another. Jesus was never rude to others. On the other hand, he was dishonored himself and shamed himself for us. He was spat upon and cursed in our place so that we would be forgiven and we would treat others with love and not rudeness. And so Paul tells this church, which, which this, these folks are rude for sure, uh, people who are richer are eating at the Lord's Supper and getting drunk. The poor come and don't have anything to eat or drink. Paul tells them, can't, can't you guys, you shouldn't get drunk. Can't you guys get drunk at home? Why are you doing it up here and just eating and drinking and feasting while some have nothing to eat? Rude by anybody's standards. It is not rude. It does not insist. Love does not insist on its own way. It's not grasping. It's not demanding. That's what makes the conversation should be very different in the church when we talk about issues. It should be de very different because we're not insisting, we're not grasping. I mean, back in chapters 8 to 10, Paul says something amazing about not insisting on our own way. He's talking about meat offered to idols. I know we don't really have that around here that much. It's a complex, kind of a complex cultural thing that's going on. But what he basically says, or what he actually says, 
is he says, if eating meat offered to idols will cause my brother to stumble, then I'll never eat meat. Man, that's love. I'm telling you, as a meatitarian, that is love. That is love. I'll give it all up. If it's going to hinder somebody in Christ, I'm done with it. That's not demanding my way. That's not demanding, I'm free to eat meat. You got a problem with it? That's you, man. That's not me. Paul says, no, I'll just not do it. I can forego that for someone else's benefit. This kind of stuff is so foreign. It's not in the air that we breathe. The air we breathe is me, mine. Paul's saying, I'll lay it down. Our salvation depends on the fact that Jesus didn't insist on his way. It says, love does not insist on its own way. And Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane says, Father, may this cup pass from me, but not my will, but yours be done. You're saved today because God didn't insist on his own way, but laid it down for us. That's what Christ has done for us. Laid it down. Does not insist on its own way. Love is not irritable. That's what it says. Love does not insist on its own way. Love is not irritable. This kind of relates to patience as well, right? Being irritable when things are happening that we don't like. You know, we get irritated. Somebody irritates us. I, I find it interesting that when I'm irritated and I get irritated, I tend to locate the problem out there. They're irritating me. But the passage doesn't say, hey, People are irritating you. The passage says, don't be irritable. <laughs> the passage says the problem's not out there. The problem's right here. Okay? You're able to irritate. You're irritable. Okay? That's, <laughs> that's the problem. I usually don't go deep in my exegesis, but today I just <laughs> had to go to the root of the word. The issue is not that they are irritating. The issue is that I am irritable. And love is not irritable. So I have to ask myself, you know, like, who is, how, you know, to whom am I irritable toward in the church? I mean, the, the natural question would be, who's irritating you in the church? Who's, whose thoughts or viewpoints irritate you? But the question is, to whom am I irritable? What, what is, how is my irritability showing? That really becomes the question. Here's what I find. When I am irritable, I am not walking in grace. When you are irritable, you need grace. You need a revelation that in this moment, God is not irritated by you. That's what changes our heart. What changes our heart is not they cease being irritating. They start doing what I want. I convince them of my point of view, and I'm no longer irritated by them. No. It's when I see that God is not irritated with me and all my sin. When I trash this passage of Scripture and break every one of these commands, God still loves me in Jesus Christ. That's what changes my heart. That it's when I'm showered by, well, we're all showered by grace. When I see that I'm showered by the grace of God, then I can shower that to other people. It's not irritable. He goes on to say, it's not resentful. The NIV translates this, it keeps no record of wrongs. Love 
is forgiving. It's not holding on to wrongs in the past. It's extending forgiveness rather than harboring resentment or bitterness. Resentment and bitterness can destroy a life. It can destroy relationships. It can destroy a church community, which is what's likely happening in Corinth. Love, on the other hand, lets the past die under the blood of Jesus Christ and, and looks, uh, looks to today and, and to the future. It's not keeping a record of wrongs. It's treating the sins of others in the same way Christ has treated us. And there may be a process to that. I want to acknowledge, obviously, there could be a process to coming to the place of extending forgiveness. But it's the place we ultimately must come to, all of us, if we're going to love. Love is not resentful. It, verse 6, it does not rejoice at wrongdoing. Love has no pleasure in other people's failure. Love isn't saying, I told you so. Love isn't having this inner relish, this inner joy that someone has sinned or failed or been sinned against. It doesn't secretly celebrate when others do wrong. It doesn't gloat. Think of Christ and how he responded to the Pharisees, for instance. He didn't rejoice with their demise. There's this very tender section of Luke where it says that Jesus looks out over Jerusalem, which was ruled by the Pharisees. And he says to them, how I've longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings. When I look at you, he is not rejoicing that the Pharisees are going to get theirs. He's not celebrating something like that. He's saying, I, want, I long to bring you all under my protective care and cover. When I see you, my heart is, is broken. The heart of love rejoices over truth, and it grieves over wrong. It doesn't celebrate it. And lastly, he ticks off these one right after the other. We can read them in rapid fire, but each of them are piercing. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love bears all things. It means to hold up whatever comes. Love puts up with anything and anyone. This is what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 9. We put up with anything rather than hinder the gospel of Jesus Christ. 1 Corinthians 9, 12. We put up with anything, we put up with anything rather than hinder the gospel of Christ. Now, in case you're new, I wouldn't want you to hear, mishear that. The Apostle Paul is not saying if someone is uh, acting towards you, committing crimes against you, abusing you, or something like that, that you just say, hey, for the cause of Christ, I accept this. Love uh, love responds to, uh, to abuse, doesn't, does not to receive it, but to, and sometimes uh, where it's appropriate, report, draw legal authorities in. So I don't want to be misunderstood in but what he's saying here. But the general kind of stuff that comes up in church life, I'm not talking about criminality or severe sins that harm or so, harbor someone, uh, the, the normal run-of-the-mill stuff, that happens in our life. He says, I'll put up with all of that. All of it, rather than hinder the gospel. It bears all things. It believes all things. Now, he's not saying that love is gullible or has no discernment. The all things can also be translated always, which may give a better sense of it. Love believes always. 
See, love keeps trusting God for other people. Believes God for other people. Love doesn't give in to cynicism. Man, we are at risk, every one of us, to becoming cynics in today's world. We really are. Used to think of more, you know, older people are cynical, but it's an equal opportunity uh, sin, really. Young people are cynical. Used to be older people, you had a lot of life, you kind of get jaded as you get. Young people are cynical today, I think, as well, because of all that they are exposed to at a young age. Cynicism is the opposite of love, because cynicism just believes the worst about others, just believes the worst about their motive, expects the worst. Cynicism has no place for trusting God to act in a surprising way, but love always believes, trusts God for others. The same next one is similar. Love hopes all things. It hopes in God. Hope is never exhausted in, in God. Love means never giving up, never giving up hope in God for another person, loving them. Philip Ryken says the following about this verse. He says, most of the time it's beyond our power to solve any major problems in the lives of the people we love. Do you feel that? Sometimes there's problems in those you love and you just can't solve them. He says, believers keep struggling with sin. Families still have financial difficulty. Parents fight. Children fail. Friends suffer disease and death. But if we love people, we will not give up on what God can do. Have you ever had somebody, you felt that from them? They believed in you, but really what they, they believed in God for you. They encouraged you, God's not finished with you. Your story is not over. And they had hope for you. Man, that'll hold you up in a dark time. That's what love does. Love, it finally says, endures all things. Just as Christ endured for us, so he empowers us to endure for others. In 2 Timothy 2, Paul said this, 2 Timothy 2.10, I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they also may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. I endure everything for others. He's being Christ-like. He's saying, I'll, I'll love holds up, bears all things, believes all things. It endures all things. This kind of love is substantive. It's not sentimental. It is substantive, costly love for one another. And it's willing to cross any line, any cultural line, to communicate the love of God to others. The last point, I'm going to finish here for the sake of time, but the last point is that love is permanent. I'll just read the first part of verse 8. Love never ends. So love bears all things, believes all things, hope all things. It never ends. Paul finishes the chapter by saying spiritual gifts will be done away with, but what lasts forever is love. And we saw that at the beginning of this series, that in heaven there is a representative of every nation, every people, every tribe, every tongue before the Lord Jesus Christ, before the Lamb of God. We see that at the end of the story. There's people joined together in the love of Jesus Christ before the Lamb of God. And we pray that that would direct our actions towards one another today. We're going to close with communion. This passage, 1 Corinthians 13, man, it assesses our hearts. It assesses our church. And it points us to Jesus Christ. 
because the cross is the defining picture of love. The cross is where every one of these attributes is lived out through the cross and through the life of Jesus. It points us to him. As we receive communion today, I want you to think about this verse. We love because he first loved us. That's 1 John 4, 19. We love because he first loved us. The only way I can love my neighbor, especially my thinks differently than my neighbor, especially my different background neighbor, especially my different culture neighbor, especially my different doesn't uh, have the same experience and thoughts that I do about a certain topic neighbor. The way that I love in that way is because I receive the love of Christ first. We love because he first loved us. It's the only way that we can love one another. Let's stand together. As we come to the table, we're going to be celebrating his love for us, and we're going to be asking for his grace to share that love with one another. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Grace Church. To receive future messages, subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or listen online by visiting our website at gracechurchfrisco.org.